Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Now live on YouTube. Oh, yes. Back with Craft Brewed Agile. Todd, how you doing, sir? Pretty great. And you? I'm great. We are about to... Uh, we're about to have a beverage. I'm always happy then. And we've got a new friend with us today, Dan Vacanti. Dan, how are you, sir? Even better than Todd. So, <laughs> good, yeah. so those of you that, out there that are not aware of Dan, Dan is, uh, if you're doing Kanban in North America, it's probably because Daniel brought it here. Um, one of the leading uh, thinkers in the space, Actionable Agile Metrics, one of the best metric books on the planet. Changed the way I look at uh, estimation and all of that fun stuff. So Dan, Dan is really awesome. Glad he's joining us. Um, we got to start with the with the beer. So Todd, yeah, um, I am going to say this out loud. So I'm drinking a <laughs> strawberry margarita milkshake IPA made by Tired Hands. I think this is like my second or third Tired Hands beer on the show, just outside mm -hmm. of Philadelphia. Really good brewing. I'm coming up with a lot of really crazy milkshake IPAs like this strawberry margarita milkshake IPA that I could see Daniel laughing at before. How about you, Dan? What are you drinking? Well, hold on. Actually, it just reminds me. Just one second. Andy's gone. <laughs> you guys got to me a little bit late. I really wanted to drink. I really wanted to drink a whiskey. I had a nice 25-year-old Dalmore. Okay, as you can see, <laughs> you guys were a little, you're a little bit late. Um, so, so I'm settling for a Guinness. I know it's it's a bit pedestrian, but uh, Guinness extra stout. That's what I'll that's what I'll be drinking. Guinness is fine, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna drink the the Treff Punked from uh, the Gathering Place Brewery. Uh, this is from our good friend Eric Weber. Uh, shipped this over to me from Wisconsin. It's a Kolsch style ale. I don't think they can call it a Kolsch. I think they have to say Kolsch style. Um, but the uh, Gathering Place uh, Brewing Company is amazing. It's, uh, and this Treff Punk, I cannot wait to drink it. So I'm gonna get it cracked and going. So Todd, while I get this poured. What is the uh, question of the week for Dan? Oh, so um, usually Dan, just uh, now that we're live on YouTube and recording, uh, we like to <laughs> open up with a little bit of a question. And I, I thought that because this is 
really taken um, the internet by storm that I would ask you if you have uh, watched Tiger King yet. Uh, you know what? I have no idea what you're talking about. Maybe okay, I that's that. good. I, really, I, have, I do not have a clue. So, I know no? you are from a southern state, and it is all about how um, there is uh, the breeding of large tigers in the United States. Oh, 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 <laughs> oh actually, okay, now I know on Netflix. You're talking about the Netflix documentary. Yes, Netflix yeah. documentary, Tiger King. I refuse, actually, I know about this. I refuse to watch it. I'm actually, I'm actually coming out strongly against that show uh, and watching it because... From what I understand, and I haven't watched it in full disclosure, I haven't watched it. From what I understand, it kind of glamorizes some of that stuff. So, oh no, um, I'm so I don't, that's a hot take on it, Dan. I don't know if it well, glamorized. just I think it's a cautionary tale of uh hillbillies, meth, and tigers, not, not being a good combination. <laughs> well, yes. just, just again, in full disclosure, I we are a big supporter of Big Cat Rescue just outside of Tampa. Oh, cool. Um, uh, where, where they actually they, they save animals like that. Um, it's, it's, it's one of our go-to charities and uh, they have recommended that their, their supporters do not watch that show. So we are, we are following their recommendations. That's, that's my actually, understanding. That's, that's just actually my really, uh, That's actually really great to know. So I'm, ac I'm actually um, very pleased that I asked you the question about it because <laughs> I think that's, I think that's a, a good vantage point, right? So write us uh, dance some, somewhere in Florida. We won't tell you where, um, although we will in the comments include his um, personal cell phone number and mailing address. <laughs> <laughs> last last four of the social security all that. <laughs> yeah. but i think that's a, i think that's a really good point to make and and maybe bring into uh um to to, to light that although you know ryan and i joke about the show and it's um and it's got really some interesting characters in it that make you sort of put your head down thinking that those people really exist in the u.s that um there are some causes to look into for it right yeah yeah so big big just shout out big cat rescue Check them out. Cool. Wonderful, wonderful organization. Very cool. Uh, you know, as, as we, it's a fun question. Um, it's an interesting series. Uh, Big Cat Rescue, clearly the, um, I think they came out the best out of the whole documentary. Um, but as we shift into kind of some, some of our more leaning, some of our agile thinking, our scrum stuff, like when I think about preserving things and we're and we are in this kind of covid era we're in this this kind of um i don't know quarantine space some of us are quarantined some of us are free moving um what do you guys think are the things that we're holding on to in the industry that this event is proving that we need to let go of what do you think of that todd <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you want me to answer that really easy question first? Uh, so I, I can talk about from my personal experience that I have always really, um, let's say, uh, I've done quite a bit of um, virtual facilitation and, 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 and virtual things, but I've always erred on the side of really wanting a really good in-person experience uh, for people. And uh, this has really caused me to try to figure out ways that you can bring, bring that same in-person experience and that same collaborative type of feeling uh, virtually. And I've, um, I've worked really diligently on, 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 on how to do that. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to admit to you now that I fully believe that it's the same thing as in-person, but I do think that it's possible to create a collaborative experience um, 
whether that be a workshop, a training, or even something as a simple, um, not simple, but uh, like a sprint review or a sprint retrospective. I think there are ways that we can do, and we can do a, a really good job of, uh, to get everybody talking and everybody involved and centered around a topic. Um, but I, I will not tell you that I believe that it's the same as in person because I, I, I don't believe that. But I think there are ways that you can make it 80% of the way there. Um, I'll give, I'll maybe give a little bit more cynical answer if I can. I'll just, I'll just be the resident cynic. I mean, I know I'm going to, you guys are going to give me a run for my money. I know, which sure. <laughs> I think the thing that we're holding on to um, as an industry so much, the thing that strikes me is, especially from a consulting and training perspective, is that you have to be you have to be an expert in everything in order um, in order to, to to do this stuff. I'll be the first one to admit that I know nothing about delivering virtual training, delivering you know virtual consulting. This is all brand new for me too, um, and it just fascinates me how like overnight everybody popped up and we're all experts in visual facility virtual facilitation and all that stuff. I don't have a clue. I'm learning just like everybody else um, and probably failing miserably. So I don't know. I think that, that, that would, that's the first answer that came to my mind. Oh, I, I think that's, that's so true. Within days of people having, you know, the shelter in place orders coming out, it seems like everyone updated their Twitter profile to put hashtag remote work uh, in their profile <laughs> and countless workshops and and other stuff popping up and it's just like wow i didn't realize everyone was just an expert in this and they were just kind they were keeping it quiet and waiting for the right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just waiting for that that worldwide pandemic yeah, yeah I can't wait you know been waiting five years and finally all my zoom knowledge will pay off we're <laughs> <laughs> all learning like we've been experimenting with breakout rooms we've been experimenting with mural we've been experimenting with you know can we do liberating structures in a in a virtual space can we facilitate some of the activity and we're learning and we're messing up yeah. and we're, we're growing and changing and, and having a, a good time doing it. But I mean, it, it's not easy stuff. It's not trivial, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm lazy. I mean, you know, cause we really, we got a lot of people hopefully a lot of people teaching PSK virtually and uh, I want to learn from them. You know, I, want, I, want, I want them to go out and try all this stuff and then uh, you know, find out what works and it doesn't work. Um, cause I mean, I've got ideas. I've got, I'm, I'm with you, Todd. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm skeptical about whether whether virtual can be as good as as in person. But I think we're in a brave new world, and yeah. we kind of have to make it work. And maybe ultimately it can be better. You know, who knows? But uh, I, I guarantee you, my my approach right now is definitely not better. It's not. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though, I I started so take it out of like Scrum or Kanban or that kind of training. You know, I started my my college degree at Purdue University. Right. So I'm a boiler maker, you know, boiler up. Um, I finished my, there you go. That's, you're right. There's a boiler <laughs> as the ingredients for a boiler maker. That's perfect. Um, I've, I've had way too many of those. That's probably why I didn't finish at Purdue. Um, and I ended up finishing my degree online. And, I, and I've been thinking back to that experience quite a bit. And, and some of the things that really made a difference, um, curriculum was always well-known and transparent. Um, what was expected week over week was very transparent. There were video lessons, there were readings, there were um, podcasts. I mean, there's all sorts of different mediums to use. Um, we had this discussion board where students can talk and get help and talk about assignments. We had Zoom calls, but then the professor did a, every week there was a two hour lecture Q&A. And so there was like live virtual stuff. 
there was pre-recorded stuff, there was assignments, but it was a very clear progression. Like it was laid out exactly what was expected. I feel like I got more out of it. Like, I feel like I was able to work at my own pace. I was able to ask questions when I needed to. I had the certain mode of communication to get support from other students when I needed it. And I thought it worked incredibly well. And now as I think about, you know, was it as good as having face-to-face time with the professor? Uh, I don't know. But I mean, I was always able to get on a Zoom call like this and talk to the professor if I needed to. Um, And it kind of worked out. And so I'm wondering, like, maybe it's not the end of the training world. You know, and on that point, too, we're such a worldwide, like the world is so connected, right? Uh, It just makes me think that the approach, maybe there's a positive in this, right? Uh, Like we've all been on conference calls where there isn't video and there isn't collaboration, or maybe you're staring at a PowerPoint. I think those problems exist when you're not on a conference call, right? Uh, when you're sitting in a, in a meeting room. Um, but they, I feel like there is a light that is shined on them when you're virtual, right? When, um, because you have no idea whether a person has you know, gone to cook lunch while you're flipping through your PowerPoint presentation or not. So may, maybe the positive in it is that, um, but uh, with, along with Dan and what you said, Ryan, it, you can't help but be a little bit cynical about it, but uh, I think that it's worth a try and it's worth learning from. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, uh, and I'm, I'm having, a, I nerd out on this kind of stuff. Dan, Dan, I'm the kind of guy that will run every experiment that you possibly want. <laughs> um, Todd is like a, a Monte Carlo simulation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Iterates through everything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Ryan, um, to, to turn the subject, uh, D- Dan, I, I feel like we have to talk about your book, Actionable Agile Metrics and everything that it is in there and maybe just philosophically, like we, um, I, I think I met you a little bit over maybe three years ago. I think I met you down in Tampa at a <laughs> Scrum Network face-to-face. Maybe mm-hmm. we met before then somewhere along that time. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of the, the the stuff that you've brought into our community has been eye-opening to a lot of people, right? Um, so I knew some principles before then. I knew uh, the, the basics of flow-based metrics and things like that, but uh, you really put it on steroids for it. So first, thank you for that. Um, so- uh, you, you, guys, you guys were, but yeah, no. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, I guess maybe starting with, um, how, how, how you got into it, what inspired you to write that book? Um, can we start there? And then I'm sure Ryan and I will have 10 million questions like we always do when we're talking with Dan. Right. As you guys can tell, I'm really, really ready for this. I'm, I'm going to jump off screen just really because i got to show you something else too. One, one second. Sweet. If, if, I, if I can do one, um, one shameless plug, um, I've got my, my latest book, When Will It Be Done? Awesome. It's finally out finally out on uh, in print version. And I think this one though, the one will it be done? Because you can tell this is a few. I, I've um, been asking for a, a print copy of that. It's yeah. out there on Amazon. Now. Out? So I'm buying it's, it. It's going right yeah. It's, yeah. No, no, I'll send you, I'll send you a copy. I'll send, don't worry about it. I'll send you a copy. Right. Um, and uh, I think this one's actually more accessible personally. Mm-hmm. The the actual agile metrics for predictability, it's kind of it's kind of a reference book. Um, this one is really I I think this is probably the one that I, I should have written first. Um, it's a little bit more um, approachable. It's a little bit more pragmatic in terms of explaining how to do these things. But um, anyway, but to answer your question about how did, how did I really get into this is, um, uh, 
you know, I got I got started with Agile a, a long time ago, a long, long, long time ago. Um, because one of the things that I really got sick and tired of of being asked um, when I started as a development manager um, was this was this when will it be done? And if and the thing is, you're lucky if you get asked when will it be done, um, and especially in non-agile environments and even in agile environments, uh, usually they dictated to you. Right? Mm -hmm. um, you don't really have any say, you know, about that. And I just got sick and tired of that, you know, that that pattern repeating itself. And I kept thinking, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. Um, so when you know I was out, you know, figuring out this this Kanban stuff, the world of metrics that is available to you um, from a Kanban perspective, where we're able to to speak the language of our customers, um, is. Uh, was I think as you said, just kind of kind of eye-opening to me. And what what drove me specifically, what drove me to write that book that, that Ryan has in his hand right now, um, was, and again I'll be cynical, but everything everything that had been written on the topic of flow metrics was just just bad, it was just awful. And I think most people were, you know, the first exposure to flow metrics, if they have any any exposure to flow metrics, was like like Jira or something like that. And, mm -hmm. That's a whole different podcast on its own about you know, about, about geometric and, and things like that. So um, it was my my main motivation was actually just to write a wrong, right? it just kind of set the record straight from my perspective. Anyway, I'm not saying it's the right or the wrong way. It depends on how many of these you get in me. What I <laughs> Or you know, whether I have four hours on a train in Germany, then it yeah. <laughs> really come out right. But just yeah, but hopefully just to bring a, a little bit more a little bit more rigor and pragmatism to, to the conversation. That was, that was my original motivation. I don't know. That was, that was way too long, long-winded of an answer. Are no, we no, out of here yet? No, because <laughs> like, if you look at actionable agile metrics, yes, it's kind of a reference. I cannot recommend it enough though. I mean, the, just the fact that, so I'm, I'm very much a scrum guy. And so reading through this book, it's like, wait a minute, we've been talking about item aging forever. We've been talking about you know, putting whip limits a, and, and entry and exit points of a, of a flow system. And like, we've been using Scrum language to talk about flow metrics for, I don't know, Todd and I, the last 10 years, but we didn't necessarily know the theory behind it. We didn't necessarily know the math, but we knew intuitively that, yeah, item aging is important. If this post-it is stuck to the board and it's been stuck for three days, we're at risk. How do we swarm that? How do we deal with that? And we've been doing that for years, but to see the math behind it, to see how those metrics interplay. And even like, you know, I used to be an anti Monte Carlo kind of guy. I was like, oh, that's just computer nonsense. It's a people thing. And but when you actually look at the math and you're like, no, wait a minute, we can actually forecast a release schedule based on solid ideas that, you know, as the system changes, it updates, but just super powerful stuff. And it really, that coupled with a, a four hour train ride in Germany, you're able to be sorted out to where I actually believe in it. Like I, I actually think this is the way that we could um, to we could this is the way that we could monitor and, and measure. But what's interesting about this new setup is if everyone's remote, then that means one of the core things out of action one of the takeaways out of actionable agile metrics for me was we're not worried about the individual anymore. We're worried about the overall system. We're over worried about overall flow. We're worried about getting a, an idea into the system and out of the system as soon as responsibly possible. Well, if we're all working remote, we can't monitor individuals anymore. We're only watching the flow of work. 
that's a really fascinating outcome of, I think, some of this remote stuff. Are you seeing, are you guys seeing that too? Uh, do you want to jump in? Um, do, do you have an opinion on that? I'm, I'm interested in hearing what you say. So yes yes, and no. The, the, I think the, the fundamental problem that we, it still has to be overcome is, um, is, is one of education because I still think too many teams are anchored in, and, and, and I'll say because we're all friends here, too many teams are anchored in things like story points and you know, that, that kind of, which, which I believe, and I, I'm on record as saying this and I would say it again, I'll say it forever. I believe, I believe the whole story points movement set Agile back 10 years. I, mean, I think it was one of the worst things, um, not, not, not just because the math is bad and it's horrendous, but mostly because of you know the thinking that it instills that you know things like relative complexity are what matters when determining how long it takes to get stuff done. And generally speaking, that's just not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, so I, I would like to believe you know that what you're saying is true, Ryan. But I still think there's there's a huge hill we have to climb in terms of education and getting people to understand why focusing on the whole system and and the work instead of the individual workers. Um, it's so crucially important. You know, it's um, I love I love the way you put that, Daniel. Um, and, and I was on a I was on a, a peer review the other day, and uh, you know, I, I really want to attribute this to you right now, but I cannot remember your name. Fine young gentleman from the UK. I'll put it in the comments. But they were talking about as a Scrum Master, is your team cooperating or are they collaborating? Because there is a huge difference between that, between cooperation and collaboration. What you're talking about on that one side of it is cooperation. You might have a team that's cooperating to try to get as much stuff done as possible, but all going in different directions. That has that may they they may collaborate by going out to lunch with each other, but is that really working collaboration? Is that professional collaboration around the stuff that they're trying to put out? So so Dan, what is the big holdup? Like you work with you work with some of the biggest companies in the world. You, you travel around the globe. When you go into a place and you start talking about, you know, whip limits, item aging, cumulative flow diagrams, cycle time throughput, all these great things, where's the mental block? Like what, what's the wall that you keep running into? The mental block is all of this is it's, it's, and you guys, it's, it's, it's a cliche. You guys have probably heard me say this a thousand times, but the, the mental block is the stuff that we talk about it's unintuitive to the point of being counterintuitive. Um, everything on our whole lives that we've trained to do and that we've been taught to do it almost in no way prepares us for understanding flow. Things like, you know, in order to get more stuff done, you need to work on less, right? Getting, getting somebody to understand that because our whole lives are like, oh, obviously, you know, the, the more you work on, the more you're gonna get done. Even worse than that is the sooner you start something, the sooner it will finish. Well, neither one of those things are true, right? Um, and so getting people, getting people to, you know, past that, um, in addition to getting people out of this deterministic thinking, right? You know, project management for, for its whole history, I think has been steeped in, in deterministic planning. Um, the fact that, you know, we can absolutely know how long it's gonna take for something to finish. Well, that's not really the, the way the world works. And so shifting people to more of a probabilistic in a way of thinking that we're actually really placing bets. That's what we're really doing. Is, and that's what we're really doing. And how do we, you know, how do we act like we're playing poker you know, mm -hmm. and place, place optimal bets? But to me, those, those, those are the big hangups. And people, people are loath to, to shed both um, 
their hardcore beliefs of you know how much work they should be working on as well as we can determine how long it takes to get stuff done it's it's almost impossible to get people to shake those beliefs you know, it's interesting. I, I was working with a company in the Midwest and they, they brought me in and they said, Ryan, at the, at the portfolio level, we think we have everything figured out, but we just can't ship anything. Like projects are taking way too long. We're not getting things out. And I'm like, that's cool. Um, how many projects do you have in flight? And they showed me like 150 things that they had going. And this is at a 2000 person company, which is a lot of stuff and a lot of people. And so we've, what well, we did this interesting activity that we basically said, look, what are the things you want to invest in? And they gave me like, they use boulders. Here's the four boulders that we want to invest in this year. And we put those on a wall. And then I got out the white or the, the blue tape. Everyone has the blue tape, right? Mm -hmm. You do those lines and you create these lanes. Like, that's cool. Write every project, 150 three by five cards, write the project name, you know, maybe a, a quick description and put it on a card. So we had 150 cards, map that to the wall. About 50 actually mapped to a value stream and the hundred were busy work. And they said, all right, Ryan, what do we do? I was like, well, you cancel the hundred things that you know what you're doing. And they're like, well, how do we keep people busy? Let them self-select into the 50 things that you really want to get done. And so after about two months, I got a call from uh, one of their directors and they said, you're not going to believe this. We finished 10 things. And I'm like, I totally believe it. And I'm totally excited for you. Resist the urge to start anything else until the other 40 are done. And, and so far they've held, they've held the line and that, but it took, I mean, they had to spend a ton of money on this activity on having people come in. Um, it was a lot of time and work, but once it was proven, they don't have that block anymore, but they still have to resist the urge to start a thousand things at once, even though they watched it work. And so this, this mental block is just so real, but, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? What, what, what fascinates me, though, is um, and I, I, I look at I look at Scrum through a, a flow lens, right? I, I can I I kind of dabbled in the Scrum way back when, but I mean, in terms of my deep understanding of Scrum, I don't know. Actually, I don't even know that I have a deep understanding of Scrum, but it's really been in the past couple of years. The first time I read the Scrum guide, it, it read as a flow document for me. But what fascinates me is Scrum was a flow reaction to waterfall. I mean, right. all the, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's about smaller batches. It's about faster feedback. It's about, you know, all, you know, all of these things. Um, so why we don't take that to kind of the, the, you know, the next level, I, you know, it's, uh, I don't, you know, I don't understand. It seems to me like if you're doing Scrum, all the things that we talked about in PSK should become natural. Ryan, you and I were talking about this too. I mean, all, I think all the best teams kind of do this intuitively anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, I don't know how you could embrace Scrum, but not embrace flow. Because to me, they're one and the same. I don't, you know, I don't know how you can separate the two. Yeah, I think you're. <clears throat> that's interesting because I think back to some of the best Scrum teams that I've worked with, and although, um, so I, I, I really like that I've, I've inherited um, uh, a common language. Uh, I, I feel like from you around what we were doing, but there was a natural tendency to limit work in progress by the development team because they were collaborating on getting stuff done in, in a high quality way. Right. Um, there was an ultimate focus that was put on trying to create valuable things for customers. Uh, and so I, I think that it is intuitively inherited. I, I do think there's some stuff that is in that PSK course that is just level it up. Right. Um, focusing on work item age, Ryan mentioned that. I think that's like such an awesome thing to center your daily scrum around, maybe. Right. Uh, 
why not uh, throw out this ugly story point thing, <laughs> right? Um, it's nobody knows how to estimate in story points. You get a new team, it doesn't, it's confusing to everybody. Your stakeholders that know nothing about Scrum and software development hear story points and think that you're living in some fantasy world, right? Um, let's paint the reality of what it is and let's, let's, let's get some data around it. Um, and that I'm going to quote you on this, that triggers the right conversations when they need to be triggered, right? That's something that stuck out when, um, you and I first met for the first time that you were talking about how these are, these are all conversation triggers. Um, do you want, do you want to maybe expand upon that way more eloquently than I might be able to when you, I, I thought you were doing a great job. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Half my beer is gone already. I, yeah, so, I, like, I, too. I might have to, we might have to get another one. Guys. Oh, God, have we ever done a reloaded episode? Oh no. <laughs> we can do it too for, if you want, we might, we might call it the loaded episode. <laughs> yeah, but no, you're right. You're right. It's, it's, um, it's all about, uh, I guess it, I don't know that I, I don't know that I can do it more eloquently, but for me, it's all about separating separating the signal from the noise, right? In, in, in our daily world, we get so much there's so much noise in our process. There's so much noise, so much noise, so much noise um, that the signal gets buried. Um, and so, how do we how do we get those signals that um, something needs to happen? Like you said, we need, we need to have a conversation. You know, there's, there's something not quite right here. We as a team we need to get together um, and not cooperate, but actually collaborate to mm -hmm. to get this thing done. So, no. I, I thought you were doing a great job. I was, I was good. I, I was. I think I was just getting like we're not talking. I wanted to hand it off to you, maybe. <laughs> well, Dan, where where is your mind focused now? Like I know that you know you just got this, this paperback of the book out. These ideas are constantly, you know, evolving and changing as our as our world changes. Like where's your where's your head at now? I'm always curious to ask people like you that, and, and quite honestly, we we think you're a pioneer in this space. Like. Where's your, where's your, where are the mental cycles? Where have they shifted to? It's, 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 it's almost exclusively around this idea of, as we were talking about earlier, how do we break down these, these mental barriers? Um, you know, the, the, the resistance that people have because um, we're expecting, and um, I think, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say Scrum's at fault for this, but my combine is just as much as fault, but we, we expect when we, when we present these practices, when we present these rules, that people will behave rationally. Um, and for the most part, you know, in, in their daily lives, people are under so much stress um, that even given the right tools, even given the right knowledge, you know, they're just, they would just not, not behave rationally. And that's, that's not their fault, right? I mean, that's just, that's just being human. Um, so the thing that I'm most fascinated now is, you know, the intersection of things like, you know, behavioral economics and, and human psychology and why, why is it that even with presented with overwhelming data that working on less stuff is actually better that people choose to work on more, you know, um, that's, that's where, that's where I'm spending, spending all of my time now. Um, I feel like every time, Daniel, that I start a home project that you're like ringing in my head now because <laughs> i'm like i have uh, i cannot have six different projects like in progress in my house because i mean i think that's a really uh, good real world example of though i mean at what point are in one day are you starting yard work are you starting to build a uh, like a, a, a finish your basement off and are you replacing a light inside in your bathroom are you starting all of those at the same time do you, do you have three circuit breakers off in your house, 
right? And a hole in your front yard. And you just keep circling to all of those. And like, how, how much longer does it take you if you would just, and, and instead, if you would just say, let's do the yard work today, right? I, I, I had a friend that uh, just several years ago had, had the same problem. He, he, he um, was renovating his house, he had all these projects he wanted to start. Um, he was going, and he was going room by room, right? but he had a fixed budget. And I told him how I, I would probably go about that, but he went, he went and he started, I think six room renovations all at the same time. And of course he ran out of money before anyone got done. I was like, you know, I'm, not, I'm not one to say I told you so. But. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it does remind me of like, so Jerry Maguire, you guys have seen the movie, right? Oh, yeah. Show me the money. When, what, show me the money. <laughs> but, but what happens when the Tom Cruise character hands in a letter that that says we should see fewer clients with higher attention? Gets fired. He's fired. <laughs> yeah. his, I mean, ultimately it comes around and it works out, and he he builds a great firm, and people see that fewer clients, higher attention is good. But man, the second he proposed that, he was out the door, right? Yeah. Well, you guys, you, I mean, you guys, you guys are, are football fans, right? And. I don't know if you've read the, the I don't know if you've read the, the paper by, by Richard Thaler. This is this has been one of my biggest um, inspirations lately. You know, speaking specifically about the, the NFL draft, is you know a lot of teams get suckered into this. Uh, we we're, we're gonna we're gonna pay a lot to trade up, right? We, we want the we want a, a you know a first round pick. We want the first pick of the first round and things like that. And what Richard Thaler went out and proved is like it's actually a much much better strategy to trade down. You want as many later round picks as possible, and not spend so much money on, you know, on on a first round pick because, in the long run, that's how you're going to maximize value. Um, and he's actually worked with several NFL teams, and almost to a team, I think all NFL teams have ignored his advice, hmm. um, and they keep going after him and overspending on players that they should just not be drafting. So wait a minute, which what paper is this, Dan? I'll look it up. I, I can I can send it to you. But it, it, the, the, um, the guy's name is Richard Thaler, P H A L E R. Because that's um, that's I love I, I'm, Dan. This has to be one of your top five movies, Moneyball. Oh yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, okay. great movie. I love same thing, same thing. Man. Yeah, isn't that just that's amazing? The data just plays out. You know, Billy Bean can have the the cheapest roster in the league, but still make the playoffs. So if you've got a football version of Moneyball, I do. I do. I'm like, I'm in. It's interesting. The draft's three weeks away, right? And so narrowing in and kind of, I'm going to drive into this a little bit because I'm a huge NFL fan. Here we go. Philadelphia Eagles, 100%. (laughs) I'm 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 an Eagles Eagles season ticket holder here, sitting here. Um, so it's interesting though. So think about all the variables that are like with drafting a all pro player. Like think about all of the variables to a young kid that gets out of college and gets millions of dollars to, um, to what's in between their ears. Like I know the Eagles have drafted players that, that, that got that far based off of their athletic ability, but didn't care about football. Right. And then you have the, I mean, I just think of, so it's, it's like trying to think of the variables that you would, that you would run into from driving across the country and coming and predicting it. Right. Um, so I, I, I really like that example um, uh, around how that, how that plays out, especially three weeks from the draft, right? I read, I, I read, I read that, that paper and I mean, that was, that really, it, kind of, it kind of changed my life. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen, I've, 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 got a, I've got a talk I do that's called Don't Be a Ditka. Have you guys heard of this, this talk? Mm-hmm. Um, where I talk specifically about that. You know, 
so the classic example was the uh, the 99 draft of uh, Mike Ditka and uh, the Norman Saints, but he traded up to get Ricky Williams, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the worst blunders in the history of football. Um, you know, and But Ditka, again, Ditka thought he was behaving rationally. He thought he was doing the right thing. He was super confident in his ability to forecast a winner and to forecast value, thought he was doing the right thing. And Ended up paying the ultimate price. That was the year the Eagles drafted Donovan McNabb, and he got booed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so what round did Tom Brady go in? Yeah. That's interesting. Do you guys know this? I know this. Do you guys know this? Yes. I think he was a sixth, seventh round. round. I think it was six. I think it was sixth, a sixth round yeah. pick. Sixth round pick, the greatest quarterback of all time. Sixth round draft pick. And that's the thing. I mean, think about that. So he was like the hundred something player picked. And so if you're telling me that NFL owners and NFL coaches really understand value, that they let a hundred players go before Tom Brady, before well, they picked him, right? I mean, we obviously, we obviously don't understand that. Look at, look at the Chicago Bears. Like I love the fact that you named a talk, don't be a Ditka. I mean, Dan, that was bonus points, right? I, I've been a Bears fan since I was uh, old enough to realize that football was on the TV, right? And so the Bears go out and they, they draft Mitch Trubisky. Who did they pass up to get Trubisky? Patrick Mahomes? Mm -hmm. um, for one. Um, who else? Did, uh, there's one other uh, out of that draft league that was amazing, and I'm blanking on it, but um, Mahomes is amazing. The Bears would be a much better team with Mahomes. And instead they thought that, yeah, I, the, the idea of understanding. So this is interesting. We don't actually understand value. We're ordering things in ways that don't make sense. And then we're also, then, then that means we're probably just wishing good outcomes. And this exactly right. And th but this is the brilliance of Scrum that I don't know why it's not played up enough. The brilliance of Scrum is, hey, let's not assume that we can predict the future 18 months in advance. So let's say the best that we can do is the next 30 days or the next 14 days. And let's find out as quickly as possible how wrong we are. And I wish I wish that's how Scrum was talked about a, a little bit more because that's me. That's that's why it's brilliant, right? I mean, that's why it was brilliant, you know, when, when it came out, however, twenty some years ago. Um, but nobody really talks about it that way. I think you know to circle back to your point previously on this, Daniel. It's maybe because people don't have the appetite to say that we don't know what we don't know, and that there's a possibility here that we might fail. Yeah. Right. And because is, let's say in an organization where you're funding something that you think right out front is going to cost you $5 million, mm -hmm. people don't want to admit that that, that $150,000 into it, you could be entirely wrong. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, it's exactly. And especially if you're a product owner, right? Yeah. Your whole job, your whole reason for existence is that you're supposed to know this stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, but you know, having been a product owner, again, I'd be the first one to put my hand up and say, I don't, I do not have a clue. Let's try this for two weeks and let's, let's see what happens. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's find out. It's let's risk mitigation at that point, right? Yeah. I'm not going to get fired if I can just try yeah. something and come back in a couple of weeks. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Cause if, if this thing is wrong, I want to find out in two weeks. I don't want to find out in two years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and back to Trubisky. Now we have to trade for Nick Foles. <laughs> <laughs> like so, you're not, not going to get over that, are you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we could have and now we have Nick Foles because the number two pick. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. So, 
how do we do better, Dan? How do we, so if you're, if you're an NFL owner and you're three weeks out from the draft, what do you look at? That's where, that's why I think where you need to, to read this paper. Um, I think, don't, I'm, 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 do not quote me on this because obviously I'm three quarters into my beer. Um, I haven't read the paper for a while. Um, but I think one, one first round pick is worth six second round picks. Wow. Um, and so the, I think, you know, the idea is you want to trade down to get as many picks as possible. You want to place as many, as many small bets as possible because right. you don't know when the Tom Brady is going to come along. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, how many, how many first, first, um, first round, first overall picks um, of all time have ended up being, you know, truly, truly great, successful players. I think it's a pretty small percentage. You know, I mean, obviously that it happens, you know, mm-hmm. but for every Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning went first. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, he did. Yeah, first. For every Peyton Manning, there's a, uh, I don't know, there's a, Achilles yeah, Smith think, is that right? Sure, I'm, is that one, one of those one of those guys? Something. So, yeah. So that that's the idea. Let's see, you, yeah, tra- trade down, place as many small bets as possible, and because um, over the long run, that's what's going to win you the most games. Because that's the other, that's the other thing. That's that was that was what's great about Moneyball. It's like you're not, you know, you're not you're not buying runs. You're buying wins or something hmm. like that. Something along those lines. Same thing with NFL draft. What you're trying to do is buy buy wins. We should encourage everybody that watches us to read this paper for the NFL draft, and then they're going to be probably livid about their team's approach to it. (laughs) Probably. Maybe I'll read it. No, not I shouldn't read it after. I'm I'm like dying to read it right now. (laughs) Now it that stuff fascinates fascinates me to no end. I think it's a it's so tricky defining value, and so. What if we moved away from that? Because I think right now a problem that's trying to be that the people are trying to solve in the product world, especially, is how do we define value? What if we just not worry about that and just yeah. find small, intelligent bets? Yep. Is that where you're going, Dan? Exactly right. I and mean, you guys have heard. I'm hopefully you've heard of the book um, Thinking in Bets. Any books Thinking in Bets, mm-hmm. which is professional poker player, and that, that's another book that kind of um, kind of change has influenced my thinking incredibly because if, if, if you're a poker player you know that the name of the game is staying at that table as long as possible and you don't stay at the table by going all in on the first good hand that you see right that's not you know that's that's not how, how it works you have you have to think long term you have to think that, that um you know every every story that we work on every epic that we work on every anything that we work on it's a bet we don't know the value we don't know the outcome we don't know what's going to happen so over the long term, let's let's see as many hands as possible, and then and then hopefully from there we can we can come up with a winning strategy. So Dan, you like Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke? I love that book. I love that. So if you had, so I mean, people are probably their brains are probably swimming right now with this conversation. If you had some books to to lay on some people. Some we'll share the uh, the white paper on the mm-hmm. NFL draft because that's just. I mean, Todd and I are both like resisting the urge to click over and just have 15 minutes of dead air while we read it. But, yeah. uh, any, any Duke thinking in bets? Where else uh, have you kind of picked up some real inspiration lately? What kind of books, podcasts, videos, anything like that? Um, Misbehaving by Richard Thaler. So I mentioned Richard, Richard Thaler, who's the co-author of the paper that I, um, that I, I just, just quoted you. So uh, Misbehaving is kind of the history of uh, and the evolution of um, behavioral economics. I think I personally think Misbehaving is a much better book than Thinking Fast and Slow. Love, people love Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman. 
which is not a bad book, but I think mis I personally think Misbehaving is a, is a much, much better book. Um, in terms of the unintuitive parts of math, I think the go-to book is uh, a book called The Plaw of Averages yes. by Dr. Sam Savage. Um, and the good news about that book is you really don't have to read the first half of that one. You don't have to really read the whole thing with all due respect to Dr. Savage. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, off the top of my head, those would be, those would be three books. I mean, I could, I could keep going if you wanted to, but uh, those would those be my, my big headers, really. The Flaw of Averages, when I read that, um, that book, I like couldn't even turn on the TV or open an internet article because I thought the whole world was lies. <laughs> <laughs> And you're seeing it now. I mean, you know how many, yeah. you know, how many, how many projections that we're seeing for for COVID nineteen are based on averages. You know how many, mm -hmm. you know how, how much planning is based on you know on averages. It's just mm -hmm. uh, people don't understand. If you plan on average, you will fail on average. Right? Mm -hmm. That's, um, I don't. Know. Definitely some good books to read. Um, that draft article, though, is going to be fascinating. I think yeah. the book Moneyball is actually really good, too. They've actually read the book based on the movie, or the movie based on the book, whichever way you want to put it. <laughs> Hold on. That's where wow. the funk is not helping me. Thank you. <laughs> so it's so, that the movie was based on. Uh, also a fascinating read, and the math isn't too bad. Um, but it is kind of that. I love that shift away from trying to know value up front and just I, you know, you take it to a poker world, like I've got poker chips sitting here next to me. Like I'm a big fan of the game, not because I like gambling. Actually, I'm a very cheap gambler, um, but I like the math and I like the idea of, um, I like the idea that you can play it perfect and still lose. Like mm -hmm. there's something like that's weird to think is appealing, but it's appealing to me where I'm like, I did nothing wrong mm -hmm. and the outcome was not what I wanted. And there's something to that. That's life. I mean, that's life, right? And um, what, I, what I love about that is pe people think that, that games like that, like, you know, random processes cannot be predictable. Um, what, but what's fascinating to me is, uh, you know, when everybody says that, you know, random processes can't be predictable, there is a whole industry in Las Vegas that has made billions or even trillions of dollars proving otherwise, right? Random processes are very, 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 or can be very, very, very predictable. So... Um, it's just that every once in a while, you will do all the right things and you will still lose. But that's life. That's just how oh, it works. I think it's very predictable. A friend of mine is retiring at the age of, of 40 after spending years writing poker bots on playing site. Mm -hmm. And he was able to, to beat the system. He had a, a fairly decent margin and just a slight edge and, you know, retiring okay. a multimillionaire because the bots did great. My guess is he was uh, probably using Monte Carlo simulation. I would imagine that's correct. Yeah. But yeah, there is some, some, some. Uh, you can, you can make some sense of the chaos. So why we, why we? If I can ask some questions, because we're getting pretty close. I'm getting pretty close to the end of my deal. Yeah. yeah I think I finished mine quickly. It, oh, the, no. Because the <laughs> the strawberry margarita milkshake IPA was good. <laughs> go, go ahead, go ahead, Dan. What's up? It's amazing. Because I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to talk about Scrum. Um, because we haven't really talked about Scrum all that much, you, 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 you're Scrum guys, and I have to say that conversation in Germany, you know, with Ryan, unfortunately, Todd, you weren't there. I wish you would have been. Um, really, really changed changed my thinking about about Scrum altogether. Because I, I, to be honest, I really wasn't about sure about this this whole Scrum thing or whatever. But um, 
Ryan, if I if I can quote you, like you know, Ryan talked about Scrum Master as a badass, right? Can I can I say that um, on online? Yeah, mm -hmm. Scrum Master I, is a badass. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about that because, as a layperson from an outside looking in, I I would never characterize a Scrum Master as a badass. But in talking to you and talking to you about all the things that a Scrum Master should be doing, I was like, yes, finally this thing resonates with me. Yes, this is this is the way it should work. And I think your the book that you guys just put out really kind of reinforces uh, a lot of those concepts, right? Yeah. So, that book? Yeah, that book. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, interesting. Book. You, it's interesting you say that because, you know, you, we go to talk about social behaviors and, and how Scrum has been adopted and the Scrum Master role has just been pushed down. Yeah. Right? And we, I mean, we wrote a book on it. So you have a, you have a product owner that um, is a 5% product owner and 95% of everything else they do is other duties. Like that's a huge problem. Guess whose fault it is if you let that stay that way. Yeah. Your scrum master. Guess yeah. whose fault it is if your team um, constantly delivers software into production that comes back with massive bug reports and that just continues to happen. Guess whose fault that is. You're not the one writing the bugs, but you're indirectly responsible for it because you're not bringing it to anybody's attention. And yeah. so, I mean, we spent you know, two years writing a book, basically saying scrum masters, like, wake up, like it's, we need to make the scrum master role what it needs to be in an organization. And they need to be a badass. And I said, yeah. I was the only person that hadn't said ass so far. And now <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so important that scrum yeah. masters see themselves as powerful change agents and not um, quiet administrators. Yeah. You know, I, and we talked about this, Dan, I just, if, a, if someone's messing up on the team and despite all efforts, they just cannot get on the same page as the rest of the, the scrum team members, get them out, mm -hmm. right? partner with, with leadership, partner with HR, remove them. Um, if there's, so we talk about three things. Like when, when Todd and I are teaching the, the advanced scrum master class, you know, a scrum master has got to have three things, right? They have to love their team. And it's a weird word to use, like the word love in a tech space or in a product space, but I, I, the way that we mean that is they have to have this deep care for this team because they want these people to be wildly successful, right? And that's a, that's a pretty powerful stance. And then finally, they have to have zero tolerance for anything that's preventing this team that they love from being wildly successful. Zero tolerance, right? So if there's a blocker, you remove it. If there's a delay, you get rid of it. Like if there is something that's causing flow to hold up, you stop it. If the if the portfolio is getting too big, you run an activity like the one I mentioned to shrink it. Like you have no tolerance for the things that hurt your teams. And I think that mentality is wildly different than what you see in the, in the real world, right? To use the phrase that I hate. Um, in the real world, you see scrum masters showing up as well. This is just how we do it here. Or this is the concession we had to make, or this is the compromise of my principles I had to, had to accept. And my answer, and I think Todd, you know, I'll speak for you as well. Cause I spent two years writing a book with you. <laughs> we don't accept that. Like no. you, your job is to not accept the things that are hurting your teams. And yeah, Dan, I think it's a powerful, vitally important role if it's performed well as a professional, but if it's not cut it. And to, yeah. And to talk to like something we got asked all the time is what do you do all day? Scrum master. What Ryan just described there sounds like a lot of work right? You don't just spend two weeks coming up with a really great retrospective format, right? Yeah. Your job is hard. 
and yeah. you're a servant leader, which means that you're not, you may never directly get credit for anything, but you're cool with that, right? And um, not that servant leadership doesn't apply to everything, because I, I think it does. I think it applies to, it's not just a scrum master specific thing, but that's what you do all day and it's hard work. So yeah, you could get us on this topic for a while if you want, Daniel, I see what you did there. I, well, I, I, I do, because like I said, this is, this is, this is what's, what's attracted me to, to, to this, this way of thinking, you know, because you know, um, <laughs> I, I can say this facetiously, um, of course, but you know, from my perspective, you know, people don't matter, data matters, you know, mm -hmm. um, but uh, so, you know, I've never been, I've never been much for, you know, I, you, would, you wouldn't call me a people person. <laughs> you know, I've always had this idea of Scrum Masters. It's like, you know, you know, get everybody together and let's 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 all hug and let's all be happy or whatever. And it's and so talking to Ryan, I was like, really, if that if that's what a Scrum Master is supposed to be, I can totally get on board with this because yeah. that's that's what I think is needed. It's what yeah. I, it's honestly what I think is needed. I think they're a flow master, to be honest. I think their role is to make sure that things are moving in and out of the system as quickly as responsibly possible and anything that's causing them not to, uh, they got to bust that up and, and make it work. So yeah, I, yeah, this, this could be another hour. <laughs> well, also, I was, cause I am at the end of my beer. I, yeah, guys, I could do this every week. I don't know why it's taken so long to get invited to this. I, we can do we it. Just, at, we basically just started last week. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we got, we got <laughs> quarantine was weighing on us, and we thought, what's a good excuse to day drink? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So I hope I hope I get invited back. I'd, I'd love to be able to, to talk to you guys. This, this you is a lot of fun. Whenever Absolutely. you want. And so if you want to have a beer tomorrow, we'll do it again. Yeah, or like if we should just hang up and go get another beer and keep going. Just kidding. I don't know that that would be acceptable in the Miller household right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, the glass is empty. Yeah. And so we have hit our time box. So Dan, we really appreciate you joining us. It's always great to see you. Always great to be able to talk to you. Um, anything you want to promote or get in front of people before we, uh, we call it a day? No, I mean, no, I mean the, the, number one, the pleasure is all mine. So any chance I get to talk to you guys. Um, I'm, I'm going to be all over that. So, so thank you very much for the invitation. I was just you know, really, really glad to be here. Um, I, I know. I guess I would just say, look for us to co-teach on a, a PSK or a Kanban class in the near future. Right? I mean, something that we can do together. And that's kind of kind of if you're watching this out there in TV land, kind of kind of be on the eye out for that because I'm looking for an opportunity to collaborate with both of these gentlemen, um, and I want to make that happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, let's do it. I'm awesome. I'm yeah, I'll PM you after this call, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, that's another Craft Brewed Agile. Uh, another beer is yeah. gone, another show recorded. And uh, you know what, for the viewers, we actually noticed a huge uptick this past week. Um, if there's any topics, any kind of ideas, if you have a beer recommendation, so let us know. Uh, or, you can, or whiskey. Or a whiskey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we won't... Uh, we won't discriminate. Whiskey's good too. But if you have some ideas, let us know. Leave a comment. But uh, thanks for watching. We hope you got a lot out of it. And uh, I'm sure we'll, we will be back to day drinking very soon. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. Stay, Cheers. Stay, stay safe. Be well. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. 
Thanks for listening and scrum on.